if you told us when we started our super niche podcast about doctors' finances that on episode 25 we would have 25,000 downloads and be interviewing a former pensions minister, we might not have believed you. But that is exactly the situation that we find ourselves in today as we welcome pensions royalty to the podcast in the form of Rachel Hall, a specialist medical independent financial advisor featured on Medics Money, and Sir Steve Webb. If you've ever wondered why the government decided to introduce the pensions legislation that has caused so much problem for the hardworking staff of the NHS, Steve gives us some fascinating insights into how government works, who makes the decisions and why, and whether or not the government foresaw that the legislation would have quite the devastating impact it did on the hard-working staff of the NHS. We also talk a bit about the McLeod and Sargent case and Steve makes some predictions and gives some insights as to what he will th- thinks will happen there. Perhaps more importantly, we also get to meet Steve's dog and we get to find out why a group of primary school students slightly doubted the legitimacy of his Wikipedia page entry. Rachel tells us about a case of a consultant who did £5,000 worth of extra work, which resulted in a tax bill of £13,500, which is an absolutely ludicrous situation that the hardworking staff of the NHS are being penalised, effectively paying to go to work. We're recording this in the middle of a pandemic when doctors, nurses and other NHS professionals are working harder than they ever have to fight this pandemic. And we consider the unthinkable scenario where some of those hardworking NHS individuals could receive a pensions tax bill as a result. And Steve is supporting a suggestion that the annual allowance compensation scheme, which the government introduced for 1920, should be extended to 2021 to make sure that our hardworking colleagues do not get a punitive pensions tax bill as a result. We also talk about some of Steve's other work, including auto-enrolment and the introduction of pensions freedoms. Steve's well known for highlighting and campaigning on perceived pensions injustices and he was very vocal in his support of scrapping the taper but he's also currently running a campaign which might affect your mum if she had a pension age before 2016 and that's right at the end of the podcast and I've dropped a link in the show notes to a really useful calculator that it might be worth showing your mum The final two things I wanted to say before we start the episode is that we're talking a lot about the difficulties with the NHS pension, but for the vast majority of doctors, it's still a fantastic scheme. If you've heard any of our previous episodes, we always ask the financial advisors, accountants at the end, if they would swap their private pension for an NHS pension, and they all would swap to an NHS pension. So it's still a great deal, but it does have some complexities that you need to appreciate. Finally, as with all Medics Money podcasts, the information here is for entertainment purposes only and does not represent any form of financial advice. Right, let's get started. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to introduce you to two amazing guests. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Sir Steve Webb to the Medics Money podcast. Hi, Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks thanks for coming on. Now, for those of our audience who aren't familiar with uh, your work, which hopefully is a minority, definitely a minority, I would have said, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I'm Steve Webb. I'm currently a partner at Pension Consultants LCP, Lane Clark and Peacock, but perhaps better known for being the pensions minister between 2010 and 2015 in the coalition government. So I was on the the Lib Dem side of the coalition uh, and I was in the DWP, which meant there were certain pensions things like auto-enrolment and state pensions I had responsibility for and other things that I talked to people in the Treasury and so on about things like tax relief, where I wasn't the person making the decisions, but obviously I talked to people who did. So happy to share some experiences from inside government on pensions and how the law's made. Yeah, that'd be amazing and real interest to our listeners. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. Um, One person who didn't know who you were was my four-year-old son, and he's got a bit of a knight obsession. So when I said that (laughs) I was interviewing Sir Steve Webb, uh, he's expecting you to have a suit of armor, a horse, and be pretty decent at jousting. Um, Should I just show him a photo of King Arthur and say that's you? Well, it turns out the things that, apart from knights and uh, and suits of armour, the thing that impressed school children is having a Wikipedia entry. 
So I, uh, I went back to my old primary school. So they'd ignored me for about, let me think what the maths is. They'd ignored me for about 40 years or something. Then when I got a knighthood, they said, oh, come back and, you know, do an assembly on, you know, if you work hard, you'll get to meet the Queen or whatever it was. And um, I went back and they said, is it true? you've got a Wikipedia page, haven't you? You know, and then brilliantly, they said to me, is it true? <laughs> Which is fantastic, sort of internet savvy that not only is it, <laughs> that's, that's fame these days, but also they realise, oh, it might be made up. So. <laughs> awesome. Uh, now, if you're wondering uh, how Sir Steve Webb ended up coming on the Medics Money podcast, uh, I think uh, a little while ago, Steve posted on uh, Twitter that you'd enjoyed an episode that we'd done on the Medics Money podcast, uh, which was about the NHS pension, specifically the McLeod and Sargent uh, cases, um, which leads me nicely uh, on to introduce our second guest for this podcast, uh, Rachel Hall. Hello. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, you're a veteran of the podcast now. I think this is your third <laughs> third episode. I am, yes. But uh, give us a recap about uh, who you are and uh, for those of us that haven't listened to your uh, previous episodes, which again is definitely a minority. Well, um, unfortunately, I don't have the celebrity status that uh, Sir Steve has, but um, I am an NHS pension specialist and I'm an independent financial advisor. Um, and I have um, a very keen interest um, in the NHS pension scheme in cases like McLeod and Sargent and the work that um, Steve has done uh, previously, um, which we'll be talking about today. Yeah, let's get straight into it, I think, because, you know, for doctors, as a practicing doctor myself, the two big pensions issues for us over the last few years has been the tapered annual allowance and the McLeod case that we mentioned now. You were very, Steve, you were really vocal in uh, the support of scrapping the tapered annual allowance. And uh, thanks very much for that. It would have been great had uh, Rishi Sunak decided to scrap the uh, tapered annual allowance, which has caused doctors all kinds of pension headaches. But he did not decide to scrap the taper. Why do you think the government took the decision to not follow lots of people's advice, including yourselves, uh, to scrap the taper. And I'd definitely be interested to know a bit more about the decision-making process that goes on behind closed doors uh, about these kind of things. Yeah, well, Tommy, it might be worth just, just rewinding a little bit and thinking about pension tax relief as a whole. And obviously, it's kind of obvious that politicians like to raise taxes in complicated, obscure ways, not in obvious ways. So for a number of elections now, and I'll try not to be too party, but my politics are well known, I'll try not to be too partisan, but it'd be fair to say that the last several Conservative manifestos have had pledges not to raise income tax, not to raise VAT, not to raise national insurance, that kind of thing, because they're the in-your-face taxes. You know, if the Chancellor stands up and puts VAT up, you notice it, you know it when you go to the shops and you feel it quite strongly. Whereas if he does something about capital gains tax reliefs or corporation tax or inheritance tax, as long as it's obscure enough, they can get away with it. So governments like to raise money in complicated and obscure ways, not in obvious and in-your-face ways. So what's happened in recent years is been, there's been a shying away from simple, straightforward tax rises. But of course, the government had a massive deficit in 2010 and still does, of course, now again. Um, so it, looking around for places to find money. So it alights on pension tax relief. And pension tax relief is a funny thing because at one level, it's not with one exception, which is about tax-free lump sums, which we'll come back to. But in one level, it's not really a break at all. You earn your money. You don't pay tax on it when you earn it because you lock it up in your pension. And then when you take it out of your pension, you pay tax. So it's sort of tax deferred. Now, you know, the big exception is tax-free cash, a quarter tax-free lump sum, not tax. That's a clear tax break. There's also an argument that you might be a high earner when you're working, a lower earner when you're retired, so you pay less tax you know, when you draw it. But, but actually, most of the cost of pension tax relief is deferral of tax, not, not a straight break. But if you're the Chancellor today, you don't care about the fact you'll get this tax in 10, 15, 20 years' time because you won't be the Chancellor. You worry about today. You worry about cash flow today. So when the government looks at pension tax relief, you can measure it in different ways, but it, it comes up with a number like 37 billion, let's say. So that's one. That's the answer to one question. That's what pension tax relief costs them this year in terms of foregone revenue. Well, if you're the Chancellor and you've got a multi-billion pound deficit, that's a big number. So you're constantly thinking how you can shave that number. And of course, what you want to do is do it in a way that gets money off people who people have no sympathy for, which is people with huge pensions. And you don't want to do it in a way that hits the kind of the average voter. And that's why there have been six cuts to pension tax relief since 2010. 
And almost all of them have been aimed at relatively high earners or people with big lifetime pots. So the lifetime allowance was 1.8 million, then 1.5 million, then 1.25 million, then 1 million. You know, And of course, nobody's going to march down Whitehall with a placard saying, I've got a million pound pension pot, feel sorry for me. Because if they did, everybody would boo and throw things. And likewise, the annual allowance went down from 15 to 40, and then the taper down to 10, all that sort of stuff. So long-winded answer is they're trying to raise lots of money in complicated ways people don't understand from people who doctors accepted, from people who the public has no sympathy for. And of course, what went wrong with the tapered annual allowance recently is the government boobed because it did something that affected people who people do have sympathy for broadly, doctors. And that's why you got the concession in the last budget, not because they think it was wrong what they did, just the politics of doctors saying, I'm cutting my shift or whatever it is, was, the, you know, the NHS is even more of a religion than not upsetting the average voter. And that's basically why they didn't give in. And of course, do you think they're kicking the can down the road with McLeod and Sargent? <laughs> <laughs> the next government well, uh, for them um, to pick up the tab. Well, I mean, what I think they'll do on McLeod, I would expect a decision very soon. Um, And I think they're genuinely torn as to whether you say everybody's got to make a decision now which scheme they want to be in, or we'll just leave it till people retire and we'll fix it when they retire. Now, controversially, I actually slightly favour sorting it out now. I know that's not a majority view, but for me, the idea that we run effectively two calculations for the rest of people's lives, and then when they retire, they have a complicated calculation they don't understand and that you have to check and it needs dependence on records from 20 years ago, that seems horrific to me. Now, okay, if you have to make a choice now, you might get it wrong. Uh, and I think doctors in particular should be able to access financial advice, not just you know a website or something, but proper financial advice to make, make the choice. So, um, but I mean, from the government point of view, most of the cost of this, of course, doesn't happen until the you know the, the NHS fund. There is no fund, so they only pay the money when people actually draw the pension. So either way, none of this matters in the short term to the government financially because the the bill only happens when the pension's paid. And um, you know, so that's a really great sort of uh, input uh, insight into why you know the, the the pensions tax is going on, but. You know, you sort of accepted there that they probably didn't foresee the impact that that would have had on the NHS, which is kind of surprising, really, because as soon as it came out, you know, people like Rachel and lots of other experts in the field were shouting from the top of the rooftops, this is going to be a disaster. And actually, unfortunately, it panned out that way. So from a, when you were in government as a pensions minister, I mean, who... Who advises you on, right, we're going to make this change. Uh, these are the possible impacts. Did you did the government not foresee the impact or did they foresee the impact and just think, oh, no one will really mind about the doctors and they'll just carry on working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like they have forevermore anyway, so just do it. Yeah, so let me, uh, this is going to sound like a bit of an excuse, but let me just clarify what I was and wasn't responsible for in government. Definitely, so, yeah. Um, only because it's kind, of, it's kind of relevant, really. So I was the pensions minister at the DWP, there was somebody else at the Treasury who did pensions and tax relief and stuff, as well as the Chancellor and so on. So I had a set of things I was responsible for, the state pension, auto-enrolment, company pensions and so on, um, but not public sector pensions, because that was Treasury-led and then each department was involved, not tax relief, which is balmy. I mean, you know, how you can be the pensions minister and not be responsible for the tax treatment of pensions is daft, but that, you know. So government is very, very uh, siloed, and that's relevant to this conversation. Because, of course, the Treasury's view, first of all, is that tax is its business and nobody else's. So, you know, although I was involved and we'll come later to talk about pension freedoms, I was involved in that process. There were times they changed the pension tax relief regime and I found out on budget day. And I was the pensions minister because it's tax and we do tax and nobody else knows anything about it. And we're the Treasury and go get lost. You know, so there's this Treasury arrogance particularly about tax. That's, that's the first thing. So you, you might say it was obvious this would, you know, have damaging consequences. You can see but, that, though, reflected in the actual calculations for the tapered annual allowance. It's almost been, you know, those calculations have been drained up by someone like Einstein. <laughs> so we expect that there's somebody squirreled away in the back of the, this archaic treasury that looks like Hogwarts of some description, greened <laughs> up this calculation. So the fact yeah. that to communicate with the outside world, i.e. their pension minister, just 
I can I can I don't find that surprising. Yeah, and and I mean a lot of this, you know, objectively looks reasonably sensible. You want to reduce the cost of tax relief to pay for the NHS or anything else. You know, you want to get more tax in or reduce borrowing or whatever. You want to reduce it from those who have either the largest pensions, the lifetime allowance, or who are maxing out this year, the annual allowance. So you restrict it only for those with the highest incomes on a tapered basis. Yeah, inherently, that doesn't sound evil, stupid, malign or whatever. What I think the Treasury and, you know, some very, very bright people work on this stuff, but they can be one step removed from the complexity of real life. I think that's the problem is cliff edges. I mean, one of the things I really, really hate in any system is, you know, a pound below, a pound above, and suddenly the whole thing switches on. And, you know, you know better than me how that's affected doctors. Um, but, but, you know, some clever civil servant has said, oh, our well, scheme pays or fix it. You know, nobody has to pay a bill now. Nobody has to sell their house or whatever it is. You know, we just, just defer the bill. Tick, move on to the next thing. You know, it, it, that's how simple it seems. And I think the other observation is they will have perceived politically that nobody would give a damn. You know, that, yes, some people have to pay more tax. There might be some quite big tax bills. But nobody, you know, the Daily Mail, who they is essentially the barometer here, the Daily Mail is not going to write stories in defence of people with million-pound pension pots or who can afford, you know, the average wage in Britain is about 27000 a year. Nobody's going to weep, would have been the view, for someone who can put, for, quote, put 40000 a year into So a they pension. didn't foresee the effect that this would have on NHS services? I don't think they did. And I think they probably thought if a few, you know, if a few people at the top whinge, well, you know, what's what's the problem here? They just, you know, do scheme pays, pay, you know, get a lower pension when they retire. What what is the problem? Yeah, so that's really interesting because basically what you're saying is that working in silos is a large part of why this happened. And uh, like I said at the start, uh, you were very vocal in support of scrapping the taper. So thanks for that. Uh, again, thanks for that, Steve. Um, one one thing that I just want to touch upon is, you know, they've tweaked the thresholds now um, rather than abolished the taper. And do you think that they didn't foresee the number of doctors that would be affected because of essentially the nature of the NHS pension scheme? Um, and that's why they elected to tweak the taper? Or why did they not just scrap the taper? Because that would have made uh, things a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, I, I forget the exact estimate of what it would have cost to scrap the taper, whether it's a billion or that. I can't remember the number but of that order, I suspect. And, and then it would be, you know, millionaires. Yeah, quotes, you know, people, <laughs> relatively large pension pots, uh, some of the best pensions in the land. I mean, you know, this is the paradox, you know, if you're on, if you work in the NHS, you're working all hours, you suddenly get these huge bills you don't understand, it, it seems capricious and unfair. But from outside, the Treasury sitting there saying, these people have got some of the best pensions in the land, these are pensions people would kill for. So, you know, there is this tension, isn't there, between, you know, the people who listen to the podcast will say it's all very unfair and why, you know, et cetera. And the politicians and the civil servants are saying that you're the winners of life's lottery. What have you got to complain about? And that's the that's they kind the of shot themselves in the foot with this, because what they did was they introduced scheme pairs and then they targeted a bunch of people who are, you know, academic and really intelligent <laughs> and who can do maths. You know, um, and what they didn't do was they didn't set up the systems in order to make people informed. So when they said we're going to run this as a negative DC account and for the benefit of the listeners, the DC account is if you um, ask the scheme to pay your tax liability, it, um, it accumulates over your working life as a debt and it attracts high rates of interest. Um but what they didn't do is they didn't report the effect of that. Um, they still don't to this day provide you with any projections and they don't provide you with your uh, negative DC loan balance. So you don't know what you're accruing against your pension and you have no idea how much that is going to scale the pension down by. And I still get issues, um, well, you know, inquiries coming in all the time of, of doctors saying, you know, I've had to sell my house. I've had to remortgage my house because I'm so afraid of these tax liabilities. So perhaps if they had done this and but they set up the systems to make people more informed and in control, then, you know, you might not have had this, you know, the Twitter storm that we had last year. 
But then that kind of leads back to this Hutton report because one of his recommendations was to bring in some kind of cost stabilizer. So he had said, um, I suggest the percentage of pensionable pay paid by the taxpayer with automatic stabilizers built into their design to keep future costs under more effective control. These stabilizers will mean that scheme members might need to increase their contributions or take a smaller pension. Um, so essentially what he was more or less alluding to was that there could be some way of maybe controlling accrual. But we saw that with one of the consultations, I think it was a September consultation, that they then scrapped completely, they just shelved it. So it's been talked about before, but there's no investment in these systems to allow to enable them to carry out, you know, these measures, tax uh, relief. Sure. And just on the two points you made there, Rachel, I mean, on the first one, absolutely. I think, you know, as I say, someone in the Treasury says, look, if people haven't got the money to pay the tax bill now, fine, we'll just take the money off them, off their pension when they retire, job done, move on to the next thing. And people on the whole civil servants aren't financial advisors, they're not familiar with pension statements and DB and projections and all that. They just, you know, and it's then handed over to somebody else to implement. You know, and they've moved on to the next thing. So I think you're right. You know, they, not enough thought goes into how it how the the end user experiences this. On the, the stuff about Hutton and cost control, I mean, they, that is actually what they've done across the public sector: schools, hospitals, uh, local government. Uh, no, local government's different, but but schools and hospitals and civil service. So so what they what they introduced was a cost cap and a cost floor. And so the cost cap said that the point of the Hutton review was people in the private sector on the whole, can't join defined benefit pensions anymore, final salary type pensions, career average pensions. So they virtually don't exist in the private sector. And there was a political anger that said, we've now got these pot of money, defined contribution pensions, there's not much money going into them, they're going to be much worse than previous generations. Why do all these public sector workers get these increasingly expensive DB? So that was the, the backdrop to Hutton. And so there was a cost cap that said, if costs are going up because, for example, people are living longer, for example, then there must come a point when you don't just tax people more, tax people more, tax people more to fund these public sector pensions. You have a cap. And that's what you're talking about there, Rachel, is when it went above a certain projected level, at that point, the employee contribution had to go up, which, of course, it has done in the NHS scheme and other schemes. So, so there was a cost ceiling, but there was also a cost floor. And the cost floor said, well, if these schemes turn out to be less generous than we thought, we have to make them more generous. And that got triggered as well. So I'm going to say to you something utterly bizarre, which is they simultaneously triggered the cost ceiling and the cost floor because they measured them in two different ways. So the ceiling was triggered because people were living longer and all the rest of it. So they had to put member contributions up. But the floor was triggered because wage growth was lower than they forecast and various other factors. So then, then they had to think of whether they were going to improve the system and just at that point, McLeod comes along and they say, oh, well, we're not going to improve the system because McLeod will cost us money. And that means we'll be above the cost floor. You know, it's just the whole thing has just become Byzantine, really. And I think that's a really good point that you just made there, that it's just so complicated now. And I think I don't speak for any other doctors other than myself, but for my personal point of view, you know, um, we work incredibly hard as doctors. We train for years as doctors and we, we work in NHS with all the limitations that that brings. But, you know, there's a psychological contract that doctors have with the NHS, you know, that we know we're going to work hard and, you know, long hours, long training, but we expect that we're going to be treated fairly, remunerated fairly. Um, and we never, that as a doctor, I would never expect that it would actually, my marginal rate of tax would be greater than 100%, i.e. in certain situations, thanks to the taper, it could cost me to go to work. And what that actually means is if I'm a doctor and I'm sat there and my department is short-staffed, 100,000 vacancies in NHS right now, 10% uh, of them doctors, okay? So my, every department short-staffed. I know my buddies are struggling because we've got not enough people on the ground. And they say, do you want to go and do an extra waiting list or something to catch up? If my marginal tax rate is greater than 100%, which is possible, Rachel, uh, you probably fill us in a bit more in the details, I'm just not going to do it. So we've got you know, we've got the workforce waiting to help, but scared of triggering a, a pensions tax bill because of this perverse tax legislation. And, and I think one thing that we're going to see from this or everything is that, like I said, we have a psychological contract with NHS. We, we know it's hard and going to be tricky, but 
you know, we're, we're going to be looked after and no one's going to come and raid our pensions pot or tax us effectively over 100% to go to work. And once you've broken that psychological contract, you add in a few little niggly things around the edge. I could talk about MTAS. I could talk about the imposed union doctor strike. I could talk about 30% real terms pay cut for some doctors over the last 10 years. But once you add all that together, it could be a really toxic mix for the NHS going mm. forward. I mean, we did it. We worked on a case where um, one woman provided cover. She was paid £5,000 worth of income and then taxed an additional £13,500. And that proportion of money was just in relation to the taper. Yes, she did have an annual allowance charge in that year, but, she, but for the £5,000 attracting an additional grand, that was totally disproportional. However, since then, obviously, they have actually... Um, you know, increased the tapering levels, which I'm seeing now on a case by case basis, more consultants, more GPs getting their 40,000 back. Um, it still does exist. Obviously, there's an issue for those earning or with growth levels above 40k and uh, taxable income above uh, 200. But, um, but generally, it has improved, I have to say. Um, it's still not great. Uh, and I think that obviously the McLeod case is going to cause a, present a lot of challenges um, in terms of annual allowance and uh, lifetime allowance. It's going to be very complicated. So I would like to see the government investing in, you know, adequate systems to inform the members, because whilst um, people like myself, financial advisors, can provide advice it kind of feels as if we end up sort of trying to carry out everyone through. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to pay our costs. And really, why should they? Because mm. there's an age discrimination case. Um, and, and I get that. So perhaps the government should pay our costs as well as part of this. A part of yeah. The- and I mean, I think... Yeah, the, the vast majority of people, I think the McLeod choice would be relatively straightforward. If you're on an average wage, you've got simple, you know, simple um, career progression expected or whatever. But there will be a minority who've got just mind-numbingly complicated choices to make. And I don't think, you know, any general modeler or website information sheet is going to help them make the right choice. Absolutely not. I mean, in generally speaking, you're looking at, um, you know, the reform scheme, um, you know, I have, I think is a, a much fairer system because I'm, I've never been a fan of, you know, a best of three final salary scheme yeah. anyway, because it really promotes an unhealthy work-life balance because people have to earn as much money as they can just before they retire. When really life is just not like that anymore. People want to be winding down. Um, we look at the situation that we've got today with the emergency declared in London and I do worry about the staff working overtime there and mm. are they going to be implicated in terms of their annual allowance so you know um, so the, there are a lot of things uh, to obviously still consider right now that I think the government needs to address Um Actually Rachel I think that's a really important point that probably hasn't been focused on enough I mean everyone's pulling their weight to do everything mm. they can with COVID. And I haven't really, I mean, perhaps it's been in the in the NHS press and the medical press, but I haven't seen it in the general press, making sure these folk who are pulling extra shifts, doing overtime and all the rest of it, don't mm-hmm. suddenly end up with huge tax bills. Exactly. So and, you know, perhaps honestly, annual allowance um, compensation scheme should be extended another year from 1920 into 2021. Mm. Uh, just to answer your question, Steve, again, I don't speak for the whole profession, but as a doctor, in a situation like this, we are just focused 100% on training yes. or what we train to do. Um, sure. And that and that is kind of my point about the psychological contract being broken because we never thought, in the example that Rachel just gave, that, that consultant has done that extra work in good faith to help up prop up a service and has had a horrendous tax bill triggered as a result. So all of those on the front line right now, uh, I'm sure they're not thinking, I mean, we're not thinking of sure. working loads. Um, you know, we're not thinking about that, but uh, I do but think... It, yeah, it would leave a nasty taste in the mouth, though, if you suddenly get a tax bill as a result, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and something else that um, Rachel said that was quite interesting that I want to push you a bit on, Steve, if that's okay. Um, you know, McLeod and Sargent uh, is horrendously complicated. Probably a lot of people are going to need advice. 
Uh, do you do you think that the government will you know do some kind of thing to fund that advice, or are doctors and nurses that are affected by this going to pick up the bill themselves? Yeah, if I was a gambling man, I think they'll go for sorting it out at the end, what they call deferred choice underpin. So I think uh, they'll say, look, don't need to do anything now. When you retire, we'll just do some maths and give you give you the best kind of thing. I I, I guess that's what they'll do, but but certainly. If they were to say, no, you know, you've got to make a choice now which scheme you want to be in or which scheme you want to have been in, as it were. Um, I think the trouble is they really, really don't like paying, you know, proper, as Rachel will know, proper financial advice costs good money because it's a highly skilled job and there aren't that many people who can do it, particularly with the NHS complexities. Um, And I wonder whether they would pay, you know, the thousands of pounds ahead that it probably would cost. Uh, I don't think they would. They maybe give a voucher towards it. I don't know at best, but I'd be surprised, to be honest. They should really provide some funding to the NHS team, their department. Yeah. Make some form of budget available to them because how the scheme presents this information to the members, I mean, I I, I don't envy you know, their job really, because especially when you look at, for example, your pension scheme, Tommy, um, which is the practitioner's scheme, is with all these GP flexibilities and things like that, there are some really perverse situations where you can end up <laughs> you can end up with less pension because through choices that you make. So I, th- I think that um, the pensions team need to be fully equipped. And I think the deferred choice will give them time to build those systems um, well, like I said in the, in one of the last podcasts, it if you do defer this choice, when you get to retirement, the final annual allowance calculation will need to be tweaked because you're going to take essentially you could take pension, like I said before, from fifty thousand up to eighty grand. That's going to be a hell of a growth, isn't it? So mm. that's what we need to kind of focus. They need yeah. their efforts on that as well. Yeah, I think one of my worries about the deferred choice is if you are a younger doctor, then it, how on earth, 20 years on or whatever it is, would you know? You know, we, we, we know that the records are rubbish now, but because it's recent enough, you've got a chance of going back and saying, no, well, I earn this amount in, or I earn this much pension in this year. You kind of fix stuff that's two years old and you've got the paperwork, but how would you ever fix stuff that was 20 years old? You just have to trust. And, and of course, it's been very shaky foundations you'd be building on, I think. I think that's a great point. Um, and Rachel touched on it that the, you know, just for me as a doctor, trying to get the accurate data from about my pension is incredibly difficult. And for consultants, it's slightly difficult. But for GPs, it's incredibly difficult uh, to get accurate pension records, which really should be a minimum. You know, this goes back to my thing. You know, we're working in NHS, so treat us fairly and, and, and you know, remunerate us fairly and we'll be happy. If I can't get an accurate pension record, you know, that is really, really annoying for me um, because I can't accurately plan. And you would sort of think that's the least uh, that I deserve just to know the numbers. But as Rachel will know, the numbers are often missing, incorrect. The data is not there. And I think what you said, Steve, is a great point that uh, it's going to compound those issues. I guess uh, what you also said, though, is that there is very, you know, super niche area. There's a limited number of experts on this. And if you did defer choice in underpin, presumably it would uh, spread out the need for advice across the next 20 years rather than concentrating it all in one uh, thing, which might help with the fact that there are only a limited number of accountants and financial advisors who truly understand the complexities of this. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, essentially, if, if if they're just going to give you whatever would have been the best, you don't specifically need advice on, on that point. Um, but, you know, as ever, I'd far rather have a simpler system where, you know, I don't want to do Rachel out of business and I don't think anything will, to be honest, but, you know, I'd far rather have a simple system where people didn't need to pay for advice. You know, that would be, uh, that's you know, which is one reason for getting rid of the taper. You know. I, to- I totally support that because, yeah. you know, we, we really want to, we want to do work where we're genuinely adding value. Yeah. And actually given financial advice. And these calculations and forecasts um, are so sensitive to future changes that we have to remind our clients all the time that, yes, this is what we think now, but this service pattern may not continue. We don't know what these people's, you know, what what is in store for them uh, and what life might be like in the future. And that's why I worry that there's too much of a... um, 
kind of reliance upon financial advisors to be able to provide this information. And I'm fully supportive of us actually not doing the work because I think the government should provide the systems to be able to produce you know, adequate information for the members so that they can make an, an informed choice. And then we can actually all return to doing what we do best rather than just doing calculations all day long. Because um, sometimes we feel like mini actuaries and that's what we set. <laughs> well, I we work with a lot of actuaries, so just be careful. Like <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, so although we could talk about the NHS pension and its complexities for, well, years probably, I wondered <laughs> if we should move on to some other things that I know that you're very passionate about, Steve. And uh, the first one is auto-enrollment, because this seems like an amazing uh, idea, really. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? And I know Rachel's got some questions about it as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the context is that if you look at the private sector, membership of workplace pensions have been in decline for decades. So I became pension minister in 2010 and roughly, I forget the exact figures, but roughly only one in three workers in the private sector was in a pension, was saving towards a pension. That's, they may have had them from previous jobs and all the rest of it, but you know, actively adding to their pension, it was getting down towards about one in three and, fall, and falling. And there'd been various initiatives and publicity campaigns and, of course, tax relief and all the rest of it just wasn't working. And in the end, what the government and, you know, we inherited proposals from a Labour government and we implemented them. So, you know, this is kind of a cross party thing, which is good, is we said, look, let's switch it around. So rather than you have the hassle of engaging, opting in, making choices, the onus is on you to opt out. So auto-enrolment says you earn 10,000 a year or more unless you, well, so your employer has a legal duty to put you in a pension. You're free to opt out within the first month if you want to, but unless you actively opt out, you end up in. And the modelling I was shown early on said that about a third of people would opt out. So two thirds stay in, one third opt out. It ended up one in 10 opting out. So you know, nine out of 10 cats, as it were, nine out of 10 people stayed in, which was fantastic. And then the defaults were you're in a pension. And then over the more recent years, that minimum contribution has been stepped up a bit, stepped up a bit. Now, NHS is an interesting example because in the private sector, you're building up a pot of money pension, literally an investment fund. And when it started, the worker put in 1%, the firm put in 1%, not even of all of your earnings, of a band of your earnings. And then more recently, it became 3 plus 2 and 5 plus 3. So the law now requires the worker to put in, well, the firm has to put in at least 3. The worker sort of puts in 5 minus tax relief, and that makes 8. So 8% of the band of your earnings is going in, building an investment fund. It's invested till you retire. But of course, that was gently phased. So as not to frighten the horses, you come in at 1%, you barely notice 1%. When it's two, you do it in an April at the time, you maybe get a pay rise, you don't notice it, it goes up and so on. But of course, with the NHS, you couldn't do that. You couldn't go in at 1%, 2%, 3%. You were either in or you weren't in. So what happened in the public sector, teachers are the same, is public sector workers got auto-enrolled, and most of them were in anyway. Obviously, membership rates were very high anyway, but you know, new joiners and so on, get auto-enrolled straight in at the full contribution rate, which varies with wages, but could be 8 9 10% or whatever. And the opt-out rates were higher in the public sector. So I've got some stats on, on the NHS schemes and the teachers scheme, and a shocking number of teachers and nurses and others have opted out. And People who live in the pensions world, like me, the private sector pension world, think this is madness. Because, you know, you've got a, in the NHS, you've got a pension scheme where the employer's putting in 20% or whatever the number is, you know, something of that order. And it's notional, but it's, it's, you know, that's the value of what the employer's putting in. Yes, you're putting in eight, nine, 10 or whatever it is, which is a lot of money, but relative to what you're getting, it's incredibly good. But because obviously people are stretched and money's tight and they've heard all this negative publicity, People have opted out in their droves, and that, I mean, Rachel, I'm sure you, you see this, but this really worries me that the younger mm. nurses, the younger teachers who've heard that their pension's rubbish because it's not as good as it used to be and they've got to work for longer and conclude they should opt out when for most of them they really shouldn't. This is still a massive issue. It's, it really is, especially with junior doctors, because, we're, because they hear all of this negative publicity and issues with taper and tax relief and they think that they should opt out and they should just have you know um, more disposable income and one of the questions that I always get I often get asked is you know should I opt out of the pension scheme and we, we just think you know people should you should 
they're just crazy, but it's because they don't understand the benefit of being in such a wonderful scheme like that. Um, so maybe more needs to be done in terms of communications um, to that demographic to, to kind of promote the schemes and get more people back in. And the trouble is the trust don't really care, do they? I mean, it's great. You know, if I'm an employer and my employee opts out, I've just saved 20% of my pay bill or whatever the number is. You know, so so the incentives are all wrong. You know, trusts have got other things to do. They don't really want the extra pension costs. But with staff, they, they have uh, the staff engagement policies now, so they should be actively promoting the scheme and joining the scheme with, with the junior doctors especially. Um, the only other reason why we, we hear about people opting out is to do with the retirement ages. So another uh, query we might, uh, you know, an inquiry would be, well, I don't want to stay in the scheme until I'm, you know, I don't want to work till I'm 65. I don't want to work until I'm state pension age. Um, and then it's it's sort of discussing, talking to them a little bit about early retirement and death and service benefits and ill health retirement pensions getting them to understand that the NHS pension scheme forms their um, kind of financial security in retirement because it's essentially another form of salary. Absolutely. Until you die, isn't it? After working until you die. And it's only then when you start to explain the benefits of being enrolled in these schemes that um, people decide, actually, yeah, it's a great scheme and I should stay in. Even with all the tax, they get fantastic benefits couple of points from a doctor's point of view um <laughs> try to explain i mean I, I of course agree with rachel that i think a lot of people have uh, their reflex action when they hear about any trouble is to opt out it seems like the safest thing to do and if they actually appreciated how much uh, they were losing by opting out that would be terrible um but uh you know the contribution rates are i pay 35 percent uh, because GP partners get to pay not only the employers, but also the employees' contribution. So that is a massive chunk. Yeah, it's tax before tax, of course, but the contribution rates are very high. And as I sort of said earlier, uh, thanks to the last 10 years of public sector wage restraint, some doctors' uh, income in real terms, according to the BMA's figures, have dropped by 30%. So that is actually quite a big drop. Um and yeah, then I guess, I mean, yeah, sorry, go on. No, no. Um, I mean, I guess the other thing that I would say is yes, it's an index linked guaranteed income for life uh, in retirement. Like, you know, that is great. And uh, it's, it's a great deal for the vast majority of us. But even in my short 12 year career, when I started, I joined the 2008 scheme, retirement age 65. Uh, now my retirement age in the 2015 scheme is linked to 68. Um, given what you said earlier about the government raising taxes in uh, you know, less than obvious ways from people that won't feel the pinch. It, there's kind of like a the psychological contract has gone. Like they've tweaked the pension so many times in a lot of doctors' minds. They're like, do you know what? It's too much hassle. Wow, I've got an extra five hundred pounds in my pocket a month, and that can go down to repay my planned student loan, whose interest rate is about six point two percent, not the one percent that I had on a planned one student loan. So there are lots of other pressures which you wouldn't think maybe uh, doctors and higher earners had, but uh, we kind of do. Yeah, and I think I think if you're paying the employer contribution as well, it is a different conversation. Um, if you are simply an employee of the NHS, you're a nurse or, or whatever, um, that kind of invisible, I keep saying 20%, something like that, that the employer's putting in, you don't see it. I don't think, sometimes I don't think it even appears on payslips. I don't know if it does, but, you know, that's a huge thing that you, if you opt out, you are throwing away. As you say, you know, if it's your money and you're paying the employer contribution as well, it's different. But on pension ages, again, you know, I, in in a, I often find myself defending public sector pensions to people in the private sector. I should just add because you might you'd think I'm being a bit devil's advocate here. Because so I'll sit in a city boardroom and people say, "Steve, what, when are people going to do something about these gold-plated public sector pensions?" You know, I hear this all the time. You know, people who are on six-figure salaries and going to get a six-figure pension say, "When are you going to do something about these gold?" You know, so that's and. But I think from within the public sector, it's not appreciated just how lousy most private sector pension provision is. You know, what people tend to do, as you've just done, Tommy, an entirely human nature is you compare with where you were before. You don't compare yourself with the people coming into your surgery who, on the whole, if they've got a job, are in a job where maybe the employer's putting in 3% of their salary. 
And if they worked in the NHS, the employer would be putting in 20% of their salary. You know, that, that's the paradox. You know, we all want good pensions for all people, but in fact, there's an awful lot that's not good across the, across the piece, really. Yeah, no, I think I was just kind of, uh, I agree with everything you've said, but I was just trying to put it into what doctors, other doctors sure. tell me, you know, yeah. oh, I'm paying 35% of my pre-tax income as a GP partner into the pension. You know, it better be a decent pension. Oh, they pushed the retirement age out to state retirement age. Oh, there's some kind of tax issue. I don't have time for that. I'm too busy as a doctor. I know. I'll just opt out. I mean, I could go see Rachel, but I'm just going to opt out. It's an easy thing to do. And oh my goodness, I've got 35%, you know, more or not because you're going to get taxed. But anyway. Most of the forecasts we do, um, we're projecting, I would say on average, most of the forecasting, and we use very sensible assumptions about future um, wage growth, uh, future profits and CPI. Um, you're looking at it, most people our age are now retiring on 100 grand a year. That's, you know, that is a wonderful pension scheme. <laughs> Um, but do you we, think that's going to continue for my generation? Please say yes. Well, there's a there's a 21 year no meddling guarantee, isn't there, Steve? I think uh, on the NHS. Uh, well, I mean, so <laughs> if when, you say it's so, Steve, that means it is. So please, <laughs> yes. I think when the uh, Treasury took through the Hutton stuff, they said uh, we won't change this for 25 years or whatever it was, and that was that was you know 2012 or something like that. Um, but, you know, if a future Treasury minister stood up and said, we've changed our mind, I mean, what, you know, what's, who's going to sue yeah. who? I mean, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. I, you know, I don't think you can ever, you know, governments can't bind their successors. So there's nothing stopping them changing. And people need to be able to afford to live in retirement because the alternative is that you, you run away from the scheme, you stick your head in the sand, you don't actually save anything. And then you come to retirement and what do you have? The state pension. <laughs> and I'll leave that one with you. That you can you can talk to people yeah. about what the state pension is, and you know how much they can expect to enjoy in retirement. Well, that's the thing. So, so I I was involved in creating this new what's called a flat rate state pension. So for for younger workers, thirty five years of work or or credits, they get the flat rate, which is just under ten thousand a year, about nine and a half thousand or so a year, and that's it. You know, so if, if you're in that system for long enough, it's a bit complicated if you're in the old system as well. But, you know, younger workers will retire at 68, 69, 70, whatever the age ends up being for younger workers on just under 10,000 a year. And if you don't want to live in retirement on under 10,000 a year, you need another pension. It's as simple as that. And it's your choice. And the great thing about the state pension is that it's not uh, tested against the annual or lifetime allowance. And it's often overlooked by a lot of medics, actually, because they they forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, if you've had an average wage, I mean, I keep coming, you know, we do get a bit hooked up on, you know, people who are on six figure salaries. But, you know, the average person's on 27 or whatever it is a year and the state pension's given you 10 of that, you know, which is a fantastic start. It's not enough, but it's a fantastic start. And it will last as long as you do. And at the moment, it's linked to the highest of wages or prices or two and a half percent, the triple lock. So it's kind of gradually ratcheting up in value. There's something you know, so it's it's and there's the inflation protection, as I say. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we've wandered back into talking about the NHS pension, despite me trying to drag you to uh, <laughs> kicking and streaming away from it. Um, oh, I mean, an auto enrollment sounds like an amazing success, and um, you know, if the state pension, you know, I mean, just sounds like a, a great thing that that uh, you were instrumental in introducing, Steve. Uh, if I tell you that my mum. Uh, I'm sorry about this. My mum asked me to ask you this. Uh, was born in <laughs> she was born in 1952. Right. Um, you can guess where I'm going with this. Um, so, for those that don't know what I'm talking about, do you want to tell us a bit about the state pension age increase and what you know? Yes. No. The good the good news you can tell your mum is I had nothing to do with her pension age increase. Just just for the record, because you very kindly <laughs> told me when she was born. But so um, let's go back again. So we go back to 1990. And a court case brought by a man who says, it's not fair. I get my state pension at 65. A woman gets it at 60. And the court says, you're right, it's not fair. So 1995 Pension Act, the government of the day says, OK, we've got to equalise. We'll level up to 65, but we'll do nothing for 15 years. So between 1995 and 2010, nothing changes. And then the plan was one year every two. So by 2012, the pension age for women would be 61, 2014, 62, 63, 64, 65, by 2020. Now, your mum, born in 52, would have a pension age under that legislation of 62-ish. I mean, it depends on the exact month, but 62-ish. Um, 
I asked pensions minister did something that affected women born slightly later than your mom. I, ch- I didn't change your mom's pension age, but let's go back to your mom's pension age. So she doesn't get a pension at 60, she gets to 62. But did she know? Now, because this change affected millions and millions and millions of people, the government didn't write individual letters. It was all over the newspapers, on the telly, everyone was talking about it. But your mum then would have been 40-ish. And I guarantee you, if she saw a newspaper headline with the word pension in it, she'd turn the page. So the DWP found out through some research they did that lots of women of that generation didn't actually know their pension wasn't going to be payable at 60. And I think the failing in the 20, in the noughties was the DWP back then didn't do anything about it when it realised women didn't know or some women didn't know. So your mum would have got close to 60, might have, I don't know, asked for a pension forecast or something, and, and to be told she got to wait another two and a bit years for her pension and said, well, nobody ever told me. And hence the WASPy Women Against State Pension Inequality campaign was born and so on. Now, the added twist is I come along and say, under some pressure from the Treasury, look, equalising in 2020, 20, 30 years after the court case is ridiculous. You know, actually, state pension ages really need to be 66, 67, 68, not 61, 62, 63, because we're living to 90 or whatever it is. So we then brought equality forward from 2020 to 2018. That's, that's what I did. I, I was there. I did that. And what that did is added a maximum of 18 months on top of the 1995 changes. So we then wrote out to millions of women and said, we're really sorry. We've added up to 18 months to your working life. So your pension age is, you know, not 64 and a half, it's 66. And they wrote back to me in their droves and said, what do you mean 64 and a half? My pension age is 60, mate. And I said, no, it wasn't. It hasn't been 60 since 1995. And so I then, you know, there are little dolls of me with pins in all over the land because, you know, I am deemed to have done both sets of changes. And of course, it is true. There's a set of women who didn't know who've had very big changes at quite short notice. And that's why it's so controversial. Yeah. Um, if you knew my mum, she's never going to retire, so it doesn't really matter. She just yeah, carry on working. Uh, yeah, keeps her going. Um, I just felt we should just uh, touch on that. And then um, we should, uh, I mean, this is crystal ball mode, really. Full um, crystal ball mode. But uh, you're sat in the Treasury and you're looking at the deficit that you've just racked up uh, thanks to uh, the coronavirus, completely unforeseen circumstances. And you are looking to uh, raise some more revenue from pensions. Do you think flat rate, pensions, tax relief is even on the table? And if not, what what would you do to try to raise money from the pension system fairly? Sure. Um, I hope, incidentally, before we finish, we'll do a cheery subject like pension freedoms, but just do a miserable one first. Um, so, yes, flat rate relief is always on the long list. You know, so what happens in the budget process is they start off with a long list of things they might do. And I'm reading Damien McBride, who was Gordon Brown's spin doctor, uh, his his biography at the autobiography at the moment, and it's really really interesting. Where they describe the budget process, and they have a spreadsheet with five pages, and the front page is the stuff that they're almost certainly going to do, and page five is the dross and so on. And you know, I guarantee you, flat rate pension relief is somewhere on that spreadsheet because it always is, but it hasn't been done partly because it's really really complicated to do, particularly for defined benefit schemes like the NHS scheme. So, you know, okay, you could tax doctors a bit more, brackets, maybe not the right time to do that, but teachers, civil servants and so on. But you've also got the employer contribution. So what do you do with that? You know, and of course it's unfunded. So it's not like you're taking cash out of the NHS pension scheme because there ain't no cash in it. So if you do have an extra tax bill, what are you going to do? Cut the NHS to pay the tax bill you just created? You know, so it sounds simple, you know, why do rich people get higher rate relief? They shouldn't, everyone should get the same rate. Sounds obvious, but as soon as you look at it, it's messy, and that's why they haven't done it. So my best guess, and it's always a best guess, is that we'll be still in the weeds, the complexities, the the threshold, you know. So for example, what could you do? Gordon, uh, George Osborne made tax uh, pensions tax-free on death in various circumstances, income tax, inheritance tax, various concessions. They could scrap those concessions. I mean, nobody expected them to come in. Uh, nobody would understand if they went, I don't suppose. Um, carry forward. You can carry forward on use personal allowances, annual allowances for three years. Well, if the Chancellor stood up and said in a very dull voice, or indeed didn't say it in the speech, just put it on page 57 of the Red Book, we're reducing carry forward to two years or one year or something. Nobody would know what he meant but he potentially raised hundreds of millions. And and so I kind of think that maybe the territory we're in, they could cap tax-free cash. 
So roughly over your life, you can build up a million pounds and a bit, but let's say a million pounds for the maths. 250,000 of that you take as tax-free lump sum. Nobody's heart would bleed if he stood up and said, well, from now on, you can only take 200,000, 150,000, whatever it is. You know, they wouldn't slash it overnight, but they could cap it, freeze it. I would guess that's the territory. I don't know what you think, Rachel, but my sense would be big, bold, radical foot reform will take years, will create lots of high-profile losers who will shout. It's much easier to just tweak a threshold. Yeah, I mean, they changed the, the tax cash to pension commencement yes. sum, didn't they? So... So, yes, yeah, so I mean, in the scheme, um, still to this day, people can actually take more than the... So just for, for the benefit of the listeners, at, the mo- at this moment in time, the amount of tax-free cash that you can take is linked to your uh, lifetime allowance. So for those who have a protected lifetime allowance, you might have a protected tax-free cash, or it's normally just 25% of the lifetime allowance. But the scheme allows you um, a maximum commutation. And on a retirement form, it will ask you, do I want um, standard tax-free cash? Do I want tax-free cash? Or do I want the maximum available retirement lump sum? Um, The maximum available retirement lump sum can end up with a 55% tax charge. So the reason why, well, we would I don't know about yourself, uh, Steve, but the reason why we made to think that they actually changed the terminology of tax free cash to BCLS was so that they could tax place this tax on it. Another nice little stealth tax <laughs> um, of theirs. So yeah, I, I suppose they could they could change that. There's a lot of talk about a wealth tax at the moment, and I mean I don't know how fair that is either. Um, I think that the challenge for a conservative government, and not not being partisan, but just objectively, is most of the wealth is housing wealth, and most of it's in London and the South East, which is essentially core conservative territory. A lot of it. So, uh, you know, if you've had a house that's you know gone up half a million pound in value or something, then there's an argument for saying, well, that was a windfall, and you should pay some tax on it. But of course, that's core sh- conservative Shire t- territory, really. Um, so they could do well to target corporation tax or capital gains, perhaps. Maybe yes, I, I could. You could see corporate. So capital gains tax rates have been lowered quite a lot in recent years, and they could be raised. Corporation tax again, they've already cancelled a plan cut. You've always got the kind of international dimension of corporation tax. You know, will Apple put its new offices in London or Dublin? Well, if you if you overdo some of these taxes, you just drive the money somewhere else. So there's a balance to be struck, especially post Brexit. Um, so I, you know, there's an argument that says, look, a lot of this, as you say, Tommy, is one-off lump sum borrowing for a crisis. It's not going to be recurring. You know, once the economy is going again, the structural deficit's a lot lower. So you know, we shouldn't actually just feel we've got to pay off four billion pounds extra of debt. We just live with some of it. But the risk is it's affordable when interest rates are diddly squat. But if interest rates just go up a little bit, and that applied to a you know, couple of trillion pound of national debt or whatever the number is, trillion pound of national debt, you suddenly think, wow, you know, we're, vul- we're vulnerable. And then suddenly you're paying so much in debt interest, you haven't got the money for public services, and we don't want to be in that position. No. So should we come on to pension freedoms? Oh, you'd never ask. about the really nice <laughs> thing that you introduced for pension savers? Yeah, so, I mean... Um, We've just talked about automatic enrolment, and overwhelmingly, this was people building up a pot of money. It's called a pension, but it's basically just a pot of money that's invested. And one of the criticisms was what happens at the end of the process. So you've built up this pot of money. What do you do with it? And the typical person, not the super rich or or the very poor, but the typical person in the middle, had no choice really but to take their pot, let's say £50,000, and buy an annuity with it, an income for life. And there's nothing evil or wrong with that, but annuity rates, the amount of pension you got each year for your pot had been going down and down and down and down. So you'd open your newspaper and it would say, annuity rates hit record low, your 50,000 won't buy you anything. And you think, well, what was the point? And for some people, an annuity wasn't the right answer. If they'd perhaps got, they were a couple, a couple of state pensions, a final salary pension over here, actually taking that pot as cash, you know, investing it or paying off your mortgage or indeed enjoying it, shock horror, you know, why not? And so what George Osborne announced in 2015, which I fully supported, was what became known as pension freedoms, which was said, it's your money, it's your pot. Yes, you can buy an annuity if you want to. They weren't, didn't ban annuities, but they said if instead you want to either take the whole lot, pay tax, but take the whole lot, or take some of it, 
put the rest into an investment and, you know, draw it when you want. Just new choices. And on balance, the worry was, famously, I was asked about people who drive Lamborghinis. You know, <laughs> will people take take their pension pot, blow the lot on a sports car and then come and claim housing benefit or something? That You know, and in fact, the opposite has happened. What's happened is that people have been responsible, cautious, overwhelmingly. I mean, not everybody, you know, people who've saved a good pension pot voluntarily are cautious, prudent people. They're not mad spendthrifts. And so what happened was, um, in many ways, people have been too cautious. What they've actually done is they've taken the money out because they don't trust pensions and they've stuck it in a cash ISA paying 0.0% or something. So in many ways, the problem with pension freedoms has been people being too cautious. But, but the point, I guess, to come to the point is it just gives people new options. So if you're a, a doctor and you've got a self-invested personal pension or something like that, you've just got more choices what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than having to, you know, buy an annuity with it. Sounds like you just spilt something on your desk there. Yes, that, was, that, was, my, that was my dog decided to jump into the collar. Strategic moment. <laughs> I'm amazed you've got this far without one of my children rolling in. And it was your dog. It's normally a dog or a child. So um, <laughs> awesome. Uh, and pensions freedom sound amazing. If you wouldn't mind introducing that to the NHS scheme, um, oh, that'd be cool. Um, <laughs> well, of course, that's the irony, isn't it? Because um, unfunded public sector schemes like the NHS, like the civil service, like the teachers, you can't take your rights in that scheme, take a cash transfer value into a pot of money pension and then enjoy pension freedoms. And the reason the government didn't allow that was simply because it brought the bill forward to today. You know, if if you're a doctor, you know, your age, Tommy, you know, decades till you retire, um, the government's bill for your pension is decades away. But if you could take a cash transfer today, it has to find the money today. And it really, really didn't want to bring future liabilities forward to today. Awesome. I'm not really into Lamborghinis or anything like that. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was super interesting to get the sort of inside steer on uh, why these decisions get made that affect, uh, you know, all pensioners, really. Uh, and it was great that you came on. I really appreciate your time. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you had any other questions that you wanted to uh, to ping at Steve. I just, I, th- I think that one thing that, um, that Steve never mentioned is his uh, the petition about the um, the married women. I don't know if you want to mention that because we could have listeners whose, you know, mother could be, you know, because uh, I think there was a case, wasn't there, cut in the name of, was it Rosemary Chattel? And she received back about 117,000 in compensation. I mean, that's quite... But then she could have been subject to a massive income tax bill. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? And just yes, so so this is to do with the state pension, so not the NHS pension, but the state pension, and it's to do with women who reach pension age under the old system, which ran until 2016. So basically, women who are now 67 or older, that kind of age group, and that system was designed after the war. And it was designed after the war on the basis that women were financially dependent on their husbands. That's, that was the model. And it's still there in the, you know, until 2016. And so what happened was two things. First of all, married women could get a 60% pension from their husband, even if they'd never paid in, been at home with the kids all the time or been a house, quotes, housewife, but you know what I mean, that sort of idea. And then if and when the husband died, if he died first, they could get 100% basic pension from him, inherit some of his extra state pension, all that stuff. So most of the time for most people, that kind of worked. But last year, we discovered tens of thousands of women of this generation who either, when the husband turned 65, never got this 60% pension as a married woman, Or in the case of the lady you mentioned, when she was widowed, they just never did the sums. They just carried on paying for 20 years what she was getting. And then 20 years on after, you know, 15 phone calls and chasing by her son, they finally said, oh, that's for Sorry, madam. You know, 20 years ago, we should have fixed your pension. Here's 100,000 quid. You know, now it sounds extreme and absurd. And I'm not for the minute suggesting most people are on the wrong pension. They're not. But we were quite shocked. And we found one case and then two and then three. And suddenly my inbox is full of people saying, well, I'm only on £60 a week pension, Mr. Webb. I should be on more, shouldn't I? So LCP have done a website calculator, which we've had a third of a million hits on of married women just checking their state pension. And the government have now agreed that they will do a trawl of their computer records and try and find some of these women. I don't think they're looking broadly enough. But at the moment, they're just asking people to phone up. So, you know, straight after Christmas in my inbox, I had a lady who'd been on 56 pence 
of state pension, essentially nil, and read the story, phoned up, and she's just got 40,000 quid of back pension. Wow, that's you know? amazing. So, yeah. uh, so definitely well worth, you know, uh, just going on our site and just having a look at, just to check, you know, it, it's not a commercial thing for us. It's kind of pro bono thing, just to help people get the right state pension. That sounds awesome. Definitely uh, send us the link and I'll drop it in the show notes. Because uh, that sounds uh, like something that even, you know, doctors, parents and stuff need to be aware of. So yeah, that sounds amazing. All right. Well, I, I literally sounds like your dog really wants to go for a walk. She or, wants to walk. Uh, <laughs> That's the jangling become too much. <laughs> no, no. I can just, I can't quite see her, but I can hear her jangling around. So I don't want to deprive uh, the dog of... Uh, uh, <laughs> so cute um so yeah i don't want to deprive your dog any longer thank you so much for taking the time to do this it was as i say as a doctor we've been you know struggling with pensions quite a while and it was great to get the inside steer on it from two experts um any parting words of wisdom from either of you to doctors or teachers or anyone with a state pension steve <laughs> I was offering Rachel the chance to go. Through. Um, no, just so, you know, so thanks for having me on. As I say, I enjoyed, I listened to the two episodes on McLeod, which I found fascinating. I follow Rachel on Twitter, which I would encourage everyone to do. Uh, always a, a good source. And obviously, yeah, we haven't mentioned Saint Tony Goldstone, uh, who, you know, is on Twitter talking about BMA for the BMA on pensions. There's a pretty huge amount of voluntary time and effort into sorting all of this out. And, you know, uh, he's obviously the one of the many one of the few go-to people on this issue so um but you know i think i guess all i would say is you know what did i want to achieve as pensions minister the bits i was responsible for i felt pretty good at it about at the end uh you know a, a reform state pension system mass membership through auto enrollment pension freedoms at the end but there's always just so much more to be done and public sector pensions sadly is just sadly still just such a mess and I, I would just say thanks for have, inviting me on um, to uh, kind of talk to, to share and discuss uh, pension issues with Sir Steve. <laughs> That's better. Also follow on Twitter as well. Um, and I would probably say for the listeners to check out the link about the state pension age and find out whether their mothers can obviously benefit from this. Um, and um, just keep listening. And if anybody's got any any queries, just send them in and we'll try and answer them. Awesome. Uh, and definitely check out the other two episodes that we did, which sort of set the scene for some of the more complicated things that we discussed today. All right. Uh, great. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, it was such a pleasure to catch up with you both. <laughs>